following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. And uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 7. Our text today is verses 14 through 25. The plan is to spend this week and next looking at this section of Scripture. And uh, so today, we come to what is by far the most debated, controversial, difficult section in the book of Romans. All right? And uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, this week uh, working and trying to get my mind wrapped around this. And last few weeks, it's kind of one of those like passages that you know is coming. You don't choose to preach Romans because you want to preach this passage. You do it because it's in the text. Uh, but a really important passage. And, uh, and so... Um, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. And, uh, and I'm going to read it here in a second. And as I read the passage, I want you to, to, to be thinking about two questions, all right? So first of all, what is Paul's point? All right, and that's the first question we should ask of any passage. What is the point? So I want you to think about what is the point that, that Paul is trying to make here. And then uh, with that, um, second question is what is the spiritual condition of the speaker. What is the spiritual condition of the speaker? That's the big question that causes all the debate, all the fuss about this passage. So Romans 7 verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. That sounds like an elementary age boy, doesn't it? For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Well, you got it, right? One reading, perfectly understand what's going on, clear as day, well, probably more clear as mud. And if you think that, that well, yeah, it's obvious, I, I get it, well, then I can almost guarantee that you missed something really important uh, as you were reading through that passage. This is a complex passage of Scripture. And, and the big challenge, as I mentioned already, is the spiritual condition of the man who is speaking. Now, we talked a little bit last week about uh, this, this longer section that really begins in verse 7. There's debate about who is speaking and and we said last week that uh, we're just going to keep it simple and say that this is Paul talking about himself. 
There's debate even about that. But we're going to assume that this is Paul talking about himself. But, but, but the big debate is, is Paul describing his pre-conversion life as a Pharisaical Jew? Is he describing his immature state as a young believer? Or is he describing the normal experience, even of a mature Christian like Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans? And, um, and so that's a really hard question to answer. Now, now, I recognize, and I think this needs to be said at the outset, that some of you, some of you really enjoy this sort of stuff. You enjoy debating things and thinking through really hard issues of Scripture, and, and so you know, that, that gets your blood flowing. And others of you, you'd rather I just told you what you should think and got right to the point. And, uh, and if you're in the latter category, I hope that you will be patient with me, because because I don't think that's really my job as a pastor. Just to tell you what you should think. I want to teach you how to think. And I don't want you just to take my word for what the text says. I want you to think through and understand good reasons why you should understand it a certain way. And frankly, if you don't end up agreeing with me at the end of the service today, you're fine. Because you're going to agree with some other really godly people who love God's Word and are committed to Scripture. And so, um, you know... We, we don't have to perfectly agree on everything about this passage. So, but, but, but ultimately, the reason we need to think through these things is because we love the Scriptures. And, and as Christians, we shouldn't be content just with the easy pickings, the, thing, the, the low-hanging fruit of God's Word. You know, all Scripture is inspired and profitable. And so we ought to be motivated to, to really understand what the Scriptures teach, because, because we need everything that God has put in His Word. And so, we ought to be motivated to understand, and I think this as well is just a good opportunity for us to, this morning to, to hopefully provide a pattern that increases everyone's capacity as you study the Scriptures for yourself. We're not just trying to understand a passage of Scripture today. Hopefully, we're as well trying to learn how to think biblically and how to wrestle through difficult biblical issues ourselves so that you can do it on your own. So, so my plan for the next two weeks is this morning, we're going to deal with the forest, and next week we'll deal with the trees. So today I'm going to give you kind of the 30,000-foot overview of, of this entire passage and, and try and work towards the overall meaning of the text. And then next week we'll come back and, and walk verse by verse through the passage and apply the, more smaller, the smaller pieces uh, on their own. So, so, so that said... You know, this is a really debated passage, and so I think it's important that we begin uh, with some, an encouraging note on, on where pretty much everyone agrees. So, so pretty much, while, while this is a very debated passage of Scripture, it's important to emphasize that, that pretty much everyone who's committed to, uh, to God's Word and to a, a faithful theology agrees about the overall message of the text. And uh, Doug Moo is a commentator I really respect, and he begins his discussion of this passage uh, with, a, I think, a very helpful statement. He says, as we approach this controversial paragraph, we must keep in mind that Paul's focus is still on the Mosaic Law. And what Paul says about the Mosaic Law comes to much the same thing. Whatever we decide about the identity and spiritual condition of the person whose situation is depicted. One can preach this paragraph in its basic intention without even making a definite identification of the ego, and that's the, the Greek word 
for I. Now, now I do want to say that, that we want to go beyond basic intention, right? I mean, we want to understand what God is saying, but, but it is hopefully encouraging to recognize that, that, that the overall theme of what God is saying in this passage is clear. So, so with that in mind, remember for, from the last couple of weeks that the purpose of Romans 7 is to clarify some of the things that Paul has been saying about the law ever since chapter 1. The, the law of Moses has come up a lot in our study of the book of Romans. And, and, he's, and he said some things that, that don't quite sit well with the Jews. And, and so in Romans 7, Paul is clarifying some of these things about the purpose of the law and demonstrating why those things are so. And so specifically, Paul has argued, he has said in, in, in ideas that are, would be very controversial with the Jews, that the law cannot save, right? We, we've seen that. No matter how hard you might try, you can't earn salvation through the law of Moses. And so, the law cannot make us righteous. Instead, Paul says, all that the law can ultimately do is reveal our sin. It gives the knowledge of sin, not the cure for sin. And, and so, in Romans 6, Paul says that God has made a new way for us to be righteous. Romans 6.14 is a crucial verse. Paul says, we are not under law, we are under grace. Now we said, that doesn't mean that we are no longer under rules, and now we just anything goes. No, the point is, is that God has brought about in Christ a major transition in, in His salvific purposes. So instead of living under the age of the law of Moses, we now live under the age of grace, which is defined by a new spiritual power that God gives to His people. It's not just that God has told me what to do. He has given me in Christ the power to do it. And Romans 7 follows that by explaining why that transition from the age of law to the age of grace was necessary. All right? and, and everyone agrees on that idea. So, so, everyone agrees that the basic message of our passage for today is, uh, let's see, I don't know if this thing is working. There we go. Is that the law of Moses alone cannot produce genuine godliness. All right? That's the basic message of our passage. And I think we can all, we can all get that. All right? Even if you get lost with some of the other things that are coming today. And Paul fleshes that idea out with two simple ideas. So, so the first idea is, is that sin hijacks our best efforts to keep the law. And we've seen this already. That, 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 and, and, and so as you look at this passage, and as we've read through it, you probably noticed that, that most of this passage records a frustrated personal testimony. The things I want to do, I can't do. And, and so, for example, notice what he says in verse 15. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. So you can hear in Paul's voice that he is frustrated. He is befuddled by his failure. He wants to obey the law. But he keeps doing what he hates. And most of the passage just simply describes that frustration. And just as he did in verses 7-13, through 13, Paul continues to emphasize that he's not frustrated ultimately at the law. 
Right? Because the law is good. What's the problem? The problem is Paul. The problem is that Paul is a sinner. So he says in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so the point there is, is that we are sinners. And and therefore, the law of Moses can't make anyone righteous, and neither can any other set of rules and regulations. There is no standard that is the key to salvation. We need something more if we have any hope of holiness and deliverance. And so, that's Paul's main point. But he can't, you know, Paul can't just leave us in the pit of despair. He has to as well include some hope. And so, another key idea in this passage is that Christ is our only hope of deliverance. So, so look how he concludes the passage in verses 24 and 25. He kind of concludes all the frustration by saying in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So so my only hope of salvation, my only hope of, of, of genuine godliness is in Christ. And so I need the age of grace. That's, that's the basic message of this passage. And everyone agrees on that, all right? So Christ is my only hope for victory. And so you cannot save yourself by keeping the law of Moses or any other law. You need to receive Christ. And once I am saved, I can't ever think that I can graduate from dependence on the Gospel. No, the only hope I have for overcoming sin is to walk in the strength of God's grace. To drink daily of the grace that He has provided me in Christ. But while we all agree on that, all right, there's clearly a whole lot more going on in this passage than what I have on the screen right now. And so we want to understand all that God's inspired Word says, and then we want to apply it well, right? Because this is Scripture. This is God's Word. So, so we do need to think about the fundamental challenge of this passage, which is essentially identifying the I. All right? Who is talking in this passage? Now, now again, all right, we're, we're going to just, for the sake of simplicity today, assume that Paul here is talking about himself. And some people you know, want to say he's, he's speaking as Israel or that he's speaking as Adam and Eve in the garden. But it's hard to, expect, it's hard to think that the Romans would have picked up on that. So, so we're going to assume that Paul is talking about himself. But at what stage of his spiritual journey is he speaking? And, and again, there are three basic views. All right? So Paul could be describing his, his pre-conversion life as a legalistic Pharisee. He could be describing his early, immature Christian experience. Or he could be describing his normal Christian experience. All right. Now why is this such a complicated debate? Well, it's because there are real strengths and real problems with all of these views. And... Uh, uh, Doug Moo uh, lists in his commentary six major arguments and really good arguments for the view that he is describing an unbeliever. And then he lists five other arguments, really good, strong arguments, for why he would be describing a, a Christian, and specifically a mature Christian. 
But for the sake of argument, or for the sake of time and simplicity, uh, I've boiled it down. I just want to, I've got six questions that I'm going to put up on the screen. And I don't know, this morning I was kind of thinking, I wish I would have set this up a little bit differently because these questions are maybe a bit confusing. I wish I would have just made six statements, but this is what I did in my notes and I didn't have time to change the slides. So I'm going to go through these questions. The first three are going to be in support of the view that Paul is describing a mature Christian. And the last three are going to be supporting the view that Paul is describing an unbel- his unbelieving self. All right? And so I, my, my thought process in making them questions was to point you to the challenge of all this. And I don't know if I would have done it that way if I do it again. But that's where we're stuck. So, first question. Paul speaks in the present tense. So shouldn't we assume he is talking about the present? All right? To put that in a statement... Paul's talking in the present tense. So if he's talking in the present tense, isn't he talking about the present tense? So so notice there that that verses 7 through 13 are almost entirely in the past tense. So so Paul's personal testimony begins in verse 7. And verses 7 through 13 are almost entirely in the past tense. But in verse 14, Paul suddenly switches to using almost exclusively the present tense. And so, people are going to argue, well, if Paul's using the present tense, then shouldn't we assume he's talking about his life right now? And that is a pretty good argument, that that Paul has switched from his life as an unbelieving Jew in verses 7 through 13 to his life as a Christian in verses 14 through 25, all right? Then a second uh, challenging question is... Can an unbeliever delight in God's law and strive to obey it? Now, the assertion here is, is that an unbeliever cannot say the things that Paul says in this passage. All right? And and let me describe this. So, 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 verses 15 through 21 describe this battle that's going on in Paul's mind, right? He wants to obey the law of God but he consistently falls short. The things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing. And the argument that is made is that there is no way that an unregenerate person would even have that struggle. So for example, verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And then verse 22, he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And so the argument is, is that when you think about everything that Paul has said about the unbeliever to this point in the book of Romans, the unbeliever is hostile to God. He doesn't seek God. He is dead in sin. He refuses to worship God. Well, how could an unbeliever say, I joyfully concur with the law of God? And uh, that's a strong argument. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I have... I have switched my view. This, this, I used to believe that this was a, a view of a, of a mature Christian. And, and this argument was the one that I was always very stuck on. That, that, that I looked at verse 22 and said, there's no way an unbeliever could say that. So he has to be describing his, his Christian experience. And so it's a strong argument. I think just to build off of that, uh, verse 25 again says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, Christ is my only hope of deliverance. And then he certainly seems at the end of verse 25 to go on to describe 
his, his, the Christian struggle in light of that. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But in the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So, so I think we can hopefully grasp that considering all the ground we've covered already in Romans. That, 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 that conflict sounds more like a Christian than a non-Christian. And then another issue uh, that would uh, push us towards thinking that this is describing a believer is doesn't the author's frustration sound like my Christian experience? You know, I, this, this, is, this is a big one, and, and this is, for a long time has, has been a big one for me because when I read this passage as a Christian, my heart really resonates with much of what's being said. You know, so, so I'm oftentimes frustrated with my lack of spiritual maturity. I'm often frustrated that I want to do this and I end up doing this. And I don't want to do this, and I end up doing it anyway. And I, I oftentimes am frustrated that I'm not progressing in my Christian life as quickly as I want. And so verse 19 reflects how I oftentimes feel. The good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Do you ever feel that way? If you are striving for godliness... You feel that way a lot. And so I've listened to, to many Christians express that, that same frustration. And, uh, and, and, so I've, and I've used verse 19 many times to encourage them that, that, that they aren't alone. You know, that here's Paul, mature Christian Paul, having the same struggle that you are. And, and so, so don't be discouraged. Keep going forward. And that is a... It's a huge blessing. I've seen it be a blessing to myself and many people many other times. So, 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 there's, so, so we, we resonate with that. And so there are very good reasons to believe that this passage describes the normal Christian experience. But, but there are also some big challenges to believing that this, that this passage describes the normal Christian experience. So first of all, can a believer truly be in bondage to sin? Can a believer truly be in bondage to sin? Now, now notice how Paul describes himself in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh. And then he says, sold into bondage to sin. Now, now compare that to what Paul just said in, in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So, so what's Paul saying there? He says, everyone is a slave of one of two masters, sin or righteousness. And your master reveals your eternal destiny. So if you're a slave of sin you're going to hell. If you're a slave of righteousness, you're going to heaven. Not because you earn it, but because it reflects the transformation that has taken place. So, so if that's the case, how can he then turn around just a few verses later and say that as a Christian, I am sold into bondage to sin? That's a challenge. And, and, and while every Christian struggles with sin and oftentimes fails, 
Much of this language seems to go a lot further than just normal Christian struggle. So, so for example, I mean, chapter 6, verse 14 said, Sin shall not be master over you. But then he says in verse 18 of chapter 7, he says, The willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And notice how oppressive sin is to him in verse 23. He says, I see a different law in, my, in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and notice this, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He says he is a prisoner of the law of sin. Now, again, I want to be very clear that believers absolutely can struggle with sin. And oftentimes, we give in to our sin. But you will not find anywhere else in Paul's writings where he describes the normal Christian experience as one of bondage to sin. I mean, he just said, sin will not be your master. And and so, he has consistently, in Romans chapter 6, and again in chapter 8, he will describe the Christian life not as one of bondage and, and loss, but as one of victory. We are fundamentally victors, not losers. So, so it's really hard to, to reconcile what, what we're seeing on both sides of this with, with the idea that a believer, he would describe a believer as in bondage to sin. And then another uh, challenge, another issue is, how would a sudden switch to Christian experience fit the context? So, so the context here, all right? And, and frankly, this is the issue. This is the issue that, that has pushed me to change my position just in the last few days. And, and that's, you know, I, I'm a traditionalist. I'm like, I'm like classic firstborn. I like things to stay the way they've always been. And I really, I, I can be stubborn. I don't like to change my mind. And so, so anyway, um, I don't change my mind often, but this, you know, this, one, this one has been weighing on me for several weeks as I've, as I've worked my way through Romans. So, so in particular, Paul begins rehearsing his personal testimony back in verse 7. And, and everyone agrees that verses 7 through 13 are Paul describing his attempts as a Pharisee to achieve the righteousness of God by obeying the law and how he ultimately failed in that process. And so he says, I tried, and instead of the law giving me life, he says three times in verses 9 through 11 that it killed him. And so Paul is clearly describing his life as a Pharisee. And in the process, he makes two big points. He says, the law is good, and I am a sinner. All right? And and, and notice that, that those two points continue into verses 14 through 25. He's still talking about the fact that the law is good and I am a sinner. And so, as Paul makes that transition, what is there in the text to tell us? I mean, if, if verses 7 through 13 are clearly describing his life as an unbeliever, and verses 14 through 25, I mean, if, if for him to transition to his life as a mature Christian, that there would need to be some sort of clear marker that he's making that transition. Because imagine, you know, you're, we're, we're in the city of Rome, and I'm reading the book of Romans to you for the very first time. All right? Paul would want his audience to know what he's talking about. 
Not to have to like dig and weasel around to find it. And so, and so there's nothing in the text that tells us that there is some radical change. Now, 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 those who believe that he's talking about his regenerate life are going to make a huge emphasis of the fact that he switches from the past tense to the present tense. And, and that is there, right? That's clearly there in the text. But, but, but the reality is, is we speak in the historical present all the time. You know, so, you know, there I was in eighth grade. I was, I, you know, I'm walking from room eight to my locker when my friend hits me over the head. So, so we can talk in the historical present pretty often, and I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he, he's moving into the present tense to try and bring vividness to, to the things that he is describing. So, so yes, right, if, if you lift verses 14, through 20, verses 14 through 25 out of the context of Romans and just read it on its own, it certainly can sound like, like he is describing his life today as a Christian struggling against sin. But when you put it in context, all right, and this is a huge principle for when you're reading your Bible, context is always king. You, you can never just grab a verse and, and look at it by itself. You always have to read it in context. And, 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 and this, you know, for me, the more, I'm, the more I've dug into Romans the last few months, it's hard to take this passage in context and, and see it as describing anything other than Paul's life as an unbeliever. And then, a final argument is why would Paul strive to obey the law of Moses after Christ freed him from it? So notice the transformation that Paul describes in chapter 7, verse 6. He says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, so we made a big emphasis a couple weeks ago about the fact that, that, that through Christ we are dead to the law. We are no longer bound to the law. We're instead bound to the law of Christ. All right, and then verses 7 through 13 say that the law can only condemn. And then finally, verses 14 through 25 describe Paul's frustrated attempts to obey the law. Again, the simplest way to take that is that he is still reflecting on his life as a Pharisee and his failed attempts to keep the law. So, so, again, over the past few weeks, I've become convinced that the verses 14 through 25 describe Paul's life as a Pharisee. And I'd like to drive, just make three, three more points here uh, to, to just drive this home, and I'll do these quickly. First of all, I think it best fits the context, and I think I've covered that pretty well, that, that, func- that Romans 7 functions within the book to describe why the transition from the law of Moses to the age of grace was necessary. And I think the unregenerate view does the best job of completing the argument that Paul has begun in verses 1 through 13 by just giving a living, breathing illustration of the law's failure. Secondly, it, it, the, it fits the contrast between the old man and the new man. Now, I want to be very clear here. All right? I want to preface what I want to say here by, by very clearly saying that Christians struggle with sin. We all have a sin nature. We all fall far short of where we want to be. And none of us are progressing as fast as we would like to. All right? We would all love to snap our fingers and be holy like God is holy. But that's not the way God does it. All right? So, so I want to be very clear that, 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 that we all struggle. And, 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 and you shouldn't 
You know, the fact that you struggle with sin or the fact that you don't always do what you want to do does not mean that you're not saved. And it doesn't even mean that you're doing something wrong in your Christian life. We're sinners. But Romans 6 and 8 teach that a radical change has occurred in the heart of every believer. He says in chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So so yes, sometimes we are defeated by sin. And, And we don't always live in a state of victory and glory. But the, but, the regen, but the reality is, is that we are new creatures in Christ. And, and we are victors. We, we are new people. And so the regenerate view, or the view that, that Romans 7 is describing Paul's unregenerate life, I think best fits the image of Christianity that Paul has described in Romans. Now, there's one hanging issue though, all right, and this is the big one, is well, well if Paul is describing his unregenerate state, in Romans 7, 14 through 25, then how, do you dis- then how do you explain Paul's love for the law while in that state? And, uh, and here's, here's the, the argument. Is, is I, I've come to believe that, that unbelieving Jews did, in fact, love the law and tried to obey it. Now, and so, so what I'd say here is that I think to, to say... That, that a Jew could not make some of the statements in Romans 7 is, is really to oversimplify Paul's view of the unbeliever and, and specifically of the unbelieving Jew. So yes, every unbeliever is dead in sin. Every unbeliever is ultimately hostile to God. All right, But, but that doesn't mean that the unbeliever has absolutely no desire to do God's will. I mean, look back at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, remember we talked about this passage, it's been a while ago now, but, but this passage describes conscience. And, and so in God's common grace, He has given every person, including every unbeliever on the planet, some sort of sense of right and wrong and some sort of desire to do what is right. And we can see that all around us in, in unbelievers everywhere, that, that they have a conscience, sometimes their conscience is seared, Sometimes they call evil good and good evil, but they have a desire to be righteous. And the passage that I think is really significant is over in chapter 9. So so turn over to chapter 9, Romans 9, and I want to read beginning in verse 31. So so Paul here is, is talking about the unbelieving Jews. He's talking about the unbelieving, his 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 fellow Israelites, and and his desire for them to be saved, his desire for them to believe the gospel. He says in Romans 9, verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So, so Paul says in, in chapter 9, verse 31, he, he says that they are pursuing a law of righteousness. And that sounds a whole lot like what we just read in, in Romans chapter 7. They, they, they want to be righteous. And he even says in chapter 10, verse 2, that they have a zeal for God. That they want to please God. They just don't do it with the right knowledge of the gospel. So, so the Jews and everyone else will always fall short. But that doesn't mean that the Jewish legalist or you know, whatever other person who's trying to earn salvation by God doesn't actually love the law and want to obey it. They just are doing it the wrong way. And of course, we can, we can look at Paul's own testimony and see that Paul, before he was saved, he loved the law and he wanted to obey the law. He just missed its intent. So, so with that perspective, it's not hard to understand how, how an unbelieving Jew, especially one like Paul, who was a Pharisee and was zealous for the law, could, could say the things that he says in chapter 7. And, and, so, and so when you look at Romans as a whole, I think it makes the best sense to understand verses 14 through 25 as describing Paul's life as an unbelieving pharisaical Jew who was trying to earn salvation by keeping the law. So all that said, Bible study is hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes. I think we have to remember that that there are 2,000 years that separate us culturally and linguistically from Paul and his readers. And I think we also have to remember that that, we only get a snippet of Paul's interaction with the churches. We, we, we don't get to have you know, a full picture of all the ways that he spoke, all the various other pictures that he used, and all the other interaction that he had with Christians. And so we come to the Scriptures with some big disadvantages compared to his original readers. And so just because sometimes we're like, ah, what is going on here? That does not mean that, that Paul was, was a crazy or something. No, I mean, we, we, we have challenges to overcome. And, and those challenges are hard sometimes. But it's worth emphasizing that they are worth the effort. Because the Bible is rich and deep. And you will never exhaust the, the riches of Scripture. So, so, so don't be content with just the low-hanging, easy fruit. Work hard. Think hard. And stand on the shoulders of people who have studied and meditated on the Scripture for a long time. Because you need strong meat if you're going to be a mature believer. And don't get frustrated if you don't get it all the first time. I've I've taken both an undergrad and a grad class on Romans. I've taught through Romans 5-8 through at least five times. I've spent a lot of time reading Romans. This is, I guess this would be number six. And, and, and yet, I'm learning a ton as I do this series. 
I've read the commentaries. I'm reading stuff I've read before, and I'm learning more. And, and, so, and, and so the Bible is rich. It's deep. The more you study it, the more you learn, the more your knowledge expands. So, so don't get frustrated. You know, I, I like to tell people, studying the Bible is like learning to do anything. The more you do it, the better you get. The more times you read the Bible, the more context you have to understand the smaller pieces. So just keep reading, just keep studying, lean on the shoulders of good resources, and you will grow and you can understand the Scriptures better. So, so next week, we'll walk carefully through the details of this text. But, but I'd like to just pull everything we've said together today into three applications that, that we can use, that we can take with us as we go from here today. So first of all, for those who have not believed on Christ, understand that you cannot earn salvation by keeping the law or, or, or any other law. Now, now this is important because you know, most people who think that they are going to earn their place in heaven, frankly, they just become numb to how far they fall short. You know, they, 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 they focus on all the ways that they please God and they just kind of ignore all the ways they fall short. But what you have in Romans 7 is someone who is honestly dealing with the reality that God is holy and righteous. And then recognizing as they try to measure up to that standard how desperately far they fall short. And if you try, if you really are committed to achieving the righteousness of God so that you can earn salvation with God, you are going to realize, I am far from righteous like God is. You're going to feel defeated and, and you're going to become desperate for a solution. And so if you think that you are going to be in heaven because of something you have done or because of anything in you, that, then look at this passage and, and get a reality check that you will always fall short of the glory of God. And then see Christ as the only one who can deliver. You need to receive Him and, and have Him forgive you of your sins. And then if you have any hope of change and any hope of becoming righteous, then you need new life and you need new power that only comes in Christ. So please see this passage. See yourself in this passage. And then talk with us afterwards about how you can receive Christ as your Savior. And then for those of us who are saved, you must rely on Christ to be sanctified. Now, now again, I don't believe this passage is primarily describing spiritual growth. But that doesn't mean that it can't help us think about spiritual growth. Because in particular, I think there's a lot of Christians out there that, that you know, grew up in churches like ours who understand that we are saved by grace alone, not by works. I don't do anything to earn my place in heaven. I just put my faith in Christ. But then when it comes to their spiritual growth, well then, it basically all just becomes about me doing what I need to do. And so they set up a standard of holiness and then work as hard as they can to achieve it. And even things like prayer, Bible study, and worship really become more like items on a checklist of holiness than they are a means of grace to, to know God and to enjoy His power and strength and help. But, but this passage reminds us that sinners can never be sanctified by mere law. We need divine help. And so even, you know, if you're saved, even though you are a new creature in Christ, 
And, and we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We all need to be actively running to the grace of God every day if we're going to change. We, we can't just set up our standard and, and then grit our teeth and get there. No, we need grace. So, so I really like to emphasize you know, that, that basic Christian disciplines like Bible study, prayer, and worship, they're not just disciplines. They are disciplines of grace. So we don't just do them because they're right. We, we do them because God's grace flows to us through His Word. Because we receive grace at the throne of grace. Because God's grace comes to us as we sit under the preaching of His Word. And as we worship with other Spirit-filled believers. And, and so Christian, don't return to legalism. I mean, obey the law of Christ. But, but strive to do so from rhythms of life that are rooted in grace. And, and, and because Christ is your only hope of genuine godliness. So, so lean on that grace every day. And then finally, for, for ministry, all our counseling must be anchored in the gospel. And, and this is important um, because, because most counseling is legalism. Secular counseling and even Christian counseling. You know, so you go to a counselor, you know, for Kaiser or whoever, and you've got a problem, and they're going to give you five steps to fix your problem. It's just recycled legalism. You know, it's, it's here's your practical aids to get where you need to go. And, and obviously, you know, practical aids, practical steps, all those things, they have their place. I mean, that's, that's wisdom, and I'm not saying that those things don't have a role in, in genuine change. But folks, if, if the righteousness of God is the goal, steps and standards and rules will never be enough. And yet, so much of the counseling that we do as, as parents, as, as children and teen workers, as, as, as just counselors and brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not much different. People have problems, and we just tell them how to fix their problems. But, but, but people can't fix themselves. Only Jesus can. And, and so we use steps and rules and guidelines, but everything has to be anchored in the gospel. So, so people need to be saved before they can be godly. And we always need to emphasize that when we're trying to minister to people, that, that we start with the gospel. And then once they are saved, that they must obey the law of God, the law of Christ, but in conscious dependence on grace. And so it is your job as a parent, a minister, a counselor, to again build rhythms of life that are rooted in grace. To drive them to Christ as the answer ultimately. So folks, grace changes us, not the law. And next week, we'll build on that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the grace that has come to us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would live every day of our lives in dependence on you and, and, and looking to Christ to help us. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would aid us in our journey and that we would please you. Lord, I pray for any here who do not know Christ as Savior. We pray that today they'd be born again, that they would look to Christ to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And so God, be with us this week. Keep us from temptation and help us to walk in the power and in the strength that you provide. 
In Jesus' name, amen.